podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. As we all continue to try and move forward through this pandemic, the world does just keep pushing us back. Last night we had Leighton Orient against Tottenham Hotspur called off as Leighton Orient have had an outburst, or an outbreak, I should say, of uh, COVID-19. West Ham then announced that David Moyes, Issa Diop and Josh Cullen have all tested positive and all of them were involved in the matchday squad. Moyes, obviously, is manager Diop and Cullen were due to start the game. What this is going to mean potentially is that we see, especially in the lower leagues where there's less testing being done, football slow down again. And that, that's not going to be good for the business of football. It's certainly not going to be good for the lower league clubs who have already faced incredible financial pressure as a result of this pandemic. Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. I'm joined today by Lee Scott to have a a breakdown of the weekend's games. Uh, Lee, how are things today? Yeah, all good. Thank you, Dave. How are you? I can't complain. I can't. Well, I could, but nobody really listened to me. Um, <laughs> I'm told to just get up and get on with it, and that's okay. Um, first things firstly, a little bit of transfer news has come out. Nelson Semedo has signed for Wolves uh, for 35 to £37 million pounds from Barcelona just your quick thoughts on how he fits in that Wolves system. I think he's um, he's going to be a perfect fit for Wolves. He's another player, and, and so many players who move to Barcelona suffer from this. Good players go to Barcelona, and whether it's the level of expectation, whether it's playing style, whether it's it's the media speculation and spotlight, who knows, but good players just suddenly, they seem to regress almost within the Barcelona system and the Barcelona game model and, and everything else that goes along with it. I think that Nelson Semedo is a, a very, very good attacking right back who can play as a right wing back as well. Um, for a wheel side who are obviously looking to replace the departed Matt Doherty, he makes perfect sense. And obviously, he also fits their, their recruitment model in terms of the fact that he's Portuguese. And everybody knows that Wolves love a Portuguese player. Um, I think that from a tactical point of view, it will be relatively seamless. He'll come in, he'll provide width in the attacking, attacking phase. I think he'll dovetail quite nicely with Adama Traore on that side of the pitch, and the two of them should work quite well. I think that opposition defences are going to find themselves overloaded by quick attacks from Wolves more and more as the season progresses. Well, it was interesting watching them against Manchester City, where Adama was forced to play as the wing-back. Yeah. And it was clear they were lacking him in attack. And having also moved out Diogo Jota, who's joined Liverpool, their their attack seemed largely downgraded from what we'd seen last year. This move, as you say, pushes Adama back into that front three. And then with the likes of Pedence, Neto, uh, Vitania, and the, the young Fabio Silva that they brought in, it, it should just put them a little bit more back on track or... or at least closer to what we were used to from Wolves. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that the players you touched upon, Diego Jota, is a is going to be a big loss for them. I think that Liverpool have done a very good deal to get him in as a player who can back up that front three. It's, it's an excellent signing. But Wolves are really going to miss him. I mean, they spent a lot of money on Fabio Silva. And don't get me wrong, I think that there is enormous potential in Fabio Silva. But it's a very brave thing to go into the season with Fabio Silva being the only real backup in your squad to Raul Jimenez. Jimenez has proven himself to be quite robust and he tends not to get injured easily, he tends not to break down, but it's still a risk because Fabio Silva, for all all his potential and all the possibilities that he may have as a player over the next decade, he's still relatively unproven, especially at this level in Premier League football. I think having Adama Traore up front, as you say, it just gives teams that fear. It's the same fear that we talked about last week when we referenced Tariq Lamptey's performance against Chelsea. Whenever he got the ball on the right-hand side, the defensive line just drops out of fear that he's going to burst past. Same thing that Adama Troni gives you. That gives you room in the final third that you can combine into. So I think that the move makes a lot of sense for Wolves. It gives them a lot more flexibility. And I think that we should see them have another strong season. Yeah, I expect them to have another strong season. Back-to-back seventh-place finishes is incredible for a team that were promoted. And I have them predicted to finish seventh again this year. Um, I think they're they're really well managed. We know that they've got... The recruitment is a little bit narrow in terms of the profile. Like you say, Portuguese and, and Jorge Mendes' client is, is generally what they look for. But I do really like the addition of Kian Hoiver. Um, I think what we'll see as well is maybe a little bit more of um, the front three being flu- a little bit more fluid. I think we'll see a bit more of maybe one behind two. We could see Adama and Raul Jimenez played as a two in some games with Pedence or Vitania played behind them as a almost a traditional number 10, uh, as well as you know the normal options of the 3-5-2, the 3-4-3. Three, three, three. So, you know, I think Wolves fans have a lot to be positive about. I, I still think they'll probably add one more. They're very, very aggressive and ambitious in the market. Yeah, and I think that that's always the case with Wolves. They're never going to be really satisfied, I don't think. I think potentially they need a little bit of cover in the centre midfield. How mm. Matinho is another year older. Um, he's obviously still a fantastic player. And, and Ruben Neves alongside him is one of, the, for me, my money, the best midfielders outside the top six in the Premier League. I think that they could still do with more bodies there, potentially a backup centre-half as well. So there's potentially still work to be done. But as you touched upon, their recruitment pool is so narrow because of the way that they're run. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's not a way that I would run a football club to have that much of a a narrow recruitment focus. But it seems to be working well for them in terms of Nuno, Nuno Espirito Santos getting players that he likes, he knows, he understands, and understands what he expects of them. So... At the moment, they, they seem to be one of the the most effective clubs in terms of getting players that recruit that fit their model almost perfectly, which is, again, why Semedo makes so much sense. Yeah, I think they're in that sweet spot where agent-based recruitment, while not ideal, can work for them because they're not a huge profile club, even though they do have plenty of money at their disposal a contrast would be Arsenal, who seems to be wandering down that path as well. And it just wasn't going to work for Arsenal without the major funds behind them. They should have been looking to go more the, the Liverpool route, I suppose. They, you know, heavily analytics based, 
a lot more modern um, and being more open to to what they were looking for, as Liverpool have been over and over again. I mean, Wolves, it, it's just, it's crazy how many Portuguese players they have now. Um, I'm looking at their squad list. They have 10 in their first team squad this year. They have 10 Portuguese players and they have another one or two out on loan as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day where they do just roll out a full Portuguese 11 uh, with the the new sh- the new third kit, I think it is the the wine coloured kit, and just announce themselves as you know Sporting Mendes or or whatever they want to call themselves. Um, right, we were talking on uh, talking yesterday about what we wanted to discuss today, and the three things that we kind of came down came down on were first and foremost Southampton's defensive performance against Spurs. So. Having watched this game back, what takeaway do you have from this? Because I have a few thoughts. It it was horrible from a defensive point of view. I think that post-COVID lockdown last season, when, when the Premier League came back, Southampton were one of the most effective defensive units up until the end of that season. I think that a lot of us expected that that would continue. Um, perhaps we're overstating the importance slightly that they, they placed in Hoiberg, who obviously was sold to Tottenham Hotspur in pre-season. And his role in the centre midfield for Southampton towards the end of last season was obviously very important in terms of being the player who almost controlled the press for Southampton and, and who had a lot of ball regains in central areas, cut off passing lanes, and, and overall was extremely effective without the ball. I think that at the weekend in the match against Hoyerberg's new team, Tottenham Hotspur, I think that we saw we saw the problem that you have as a, a unit, a club at this level. If you want to play with an aggressive press, but then don't do so with enough depth. So the, the midfield unit, for example, for Southampton, they tended to press in the same line, which means there was always, always space between the defensive line and the midfield line. And Spurs got to the point during the match where... Harry Kane was just exploiting that space over and over again. He was dropping deeper off the front line. The the Southampton centre-backs didn't know what to do with that movement. They then couldn't cope with the movement of Son, who was moving from the left of the attack and making diagonal runs across the face. And that combination with not enough pressure on the ball and Kane picking the ball up with time and space, he was just able to break down this Southampton defensive line time and time again. I think that it's a problem for Ralph Hasenhutl. I think that Southampton were one of the teams that I was most looking forward to watching this season because I really like Hasenhutl. I really like the the aggressive play out, out of possession that he prefers. But you have to do it with a sense of structure. You can't just press aggressively on the same line as your teammates and leave space that can be exploited between the lines. It just it's a recipe for disaster at this stage, at this at this level. And we really saw that against Spurs. I mean, who would have thought that Harry Kane would end with the the, the basic stat line that he did with so many assists and then a goal. Well, like you, I'm a card-carrying member of the Ralph Hasenhutl fan club, and I, I was really excited when he arrived at Southampton. I thought he did a good job initially at turning around a mess. Obviously, last season didn't start the way they wanted, but from about two weeks after they got walloped by Leicester, they started to look like a real football team again, and his tactical plan started to take shape. Obviously, after the lockdown, they were one of the best teams in the league. Their form was really good. And 
I was really excited for them coming into this season, and I, I like the business they've done. I like I like Salisu. I think when he's fit into the team, him and Bednarak, because Bednarak will shift across to the right side where he's more comfortable. I think that's a pairing they can really, really build something from. I like Kyle Walker-Peters. I think he'll be a solid right back for them. But my issue with them has been that midfield since they sold Hoysberg. Now, Southampton fans, and I think a little bit of this is bitterness because he refused the contract extension even though he was made club captain. He said he you know, wanted a bigger challenge. And then Ralph left him out quite a bit towards the end of the season and they had that great run without him. And I think Southampton fans were a little bit too boisterous in their claims that they weren't going to miss him, that he hadn't been an important part. But as you said, when they had their turnaround, he was massively important. His organization, his communication to others as how and when to press was so important. And what we saw, I thought, on the weekend was a team not so much pressing as ball chasing. Rather than trying to cut passing angles, I thought they were ball chasing. I thought they were too aggressive. And the thing that killed me as I watched the game was all four Spurs goals are basically carbon copies of each other. Kane drops off, picks the ball up, and hooks the ball in behind. And like you say, Sun makes that angled run. And I'm sitting there and I'm screaming at the television, drop your defensive line. Just drop your defensive line 10 yards because you're leaving this enormous gulf. You're overly aggressive in front. So you're leaving a big gap between midfield and defense. And then your defense is too high to begin with. And you're getting carved apart. And at no point did I see Ralph make a change. And for me, if if he wants to be a success, and I think he can be a success, because I think he's really, really good. I think he needs to be a little bit more pragmatic. And when things start to go wrong, his in-game management needs to come up a level. I think you're definitely right. And when we talk about pragmatism in terms of how you coach a side, I think we're going to get onto that a little bit when we come onto a section to discuss Leeds United as well. But you have to have the ability to read the game and to read the danger and to be able to negate that danger. That's, that's the kind of thing that coaches like Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp do so well that they're capable of watching the first 20 minutes, half an hour of a game, diagnosing the issue and then making small tactical adjustments to try to negate that issue on the field. And that's why they tend to do well, because they're able to to change the initial game model. I mean, Hasan Hootel's game model is what it is. We all know what Hasan Hootel is as a coach, and and you and I both really, really like the, the style of football that he wants to play. But there has to be an element of of thought and, yes, pragmatism to it as well. I agree that when Salisu comes back, the defensive line looks better. I think that Sun um, really took advantage of the the poor positioning and, and poor defensive angles that, that Stevens took up, especially in the defensive line for Southampton. He, he didn't he didn't attack Bednarak quite so much, but Stevens certainly, Sun was constantly looking to make that run off of him. And that is something that they used to break through time and time again. But, I mean, you look at the, the sheer intensity of Southampton. I had a look at the, the Scout match report. And uh, for any listeners that, that aren't aware, Scout isn't perhaps always the best in terms of their advanced statistics. But it's something that, that Total Football Analysis, we tend to use because that way everything can be you viewed through the same lens, if you like. So it's always viewed through the set, set of statistics. But they had Southampton with a PPDA, which is press intensity. It's press is perfect defensive action. 
So how many passes you allow the opposition to have before you engage them in a defensive action. They had Southampton at 4.2 in the first half, which is just ludicrous numbers. When you, you consider that anything really below seven is, is a really intense press. And Southampton were, were constantly on it. Spurs sat off a lot more. They were content a little bit more to allow Southampton to have the ball because they were aware that in transition they could exploit that space time and time again. Exactly. And I thought, I thought Mourinho managed the game really well. And I thought he, like you say, he, he was cautious in the first half, had his team sit off. They were comfortable enough. There was no real, no real risk factor in Spurs first half. And the one moment of brilliance was Endembele. That brilliant turn. He holds off Romeo, who's a tank as well. Plays that gorgeous ball out to Kane. And then he hooks him at halftime. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing here? And as it turns out, he knew exactly what he was doing. But with Ralph, like you say, like that sort of pressing intensity, number one, it's it's very risky. Because if you're not pressing properly, you're going to get played through, which Spurs did at times. And number two, it's just very, very hard to maintain that across 90 minutes especially when you've got a game coming up a couple of days later. I, I, I think they need, before the window closes, they need to go and find a replacement for Heusberg in that midfield. I really like James Ward-Prowse, and I think he's the type of versatile player that can fit with a couple of different partners. And I do like Romeo. I just don't think Romeo is suited to that sort of high-intensity pressing in a two. I think in a three, he'd be okay because he could sit in and just be that holding player. Exactly. He's a six. He's yeah, not he... an eight you can press. No, exactly. And I wonder if someone like an Ibrahim Sengera from uh, Toulouse would be just the ideal fit to go in there with his his pressing, his energy, his power, his pace. And, and he's available at a bargain price. Now, the, the Athletic have reported this morning that Southampton... There's talks going on that they for the club to be sold, and so maybe that's putting a, you know, a strain on on their transfer funds. But I really do think Ralph needs to have a little bit of a rethink about a, a plan B, basically. And and you mentioned Klopp and, and Pep, and the one thing that strikes me about both of them is that they have people on their staff who challenge them and whose views they're willing to listen to. Like Klopp has spoken a number of times about how Pep and Linders will correct him on certain things and how he's learning from Pep and just as Pep is learning from him. It was the same when Arteta was with Guardiola. Um, Guardiola was open that Arteta will, will disagree with him and sometimes Arteta has the better ideas. When Arteta got the Arsenal job, Guardiola spoke glowingly about the fact that this guy is is really, really good. And from a tactical point of view, he's excellent. He sees the game in a unique way. And I think we've seen some of that with Arsenal so far. I just wonder with Ralph, does he have anyone on, on his staff who's going to question him or is he just going to do what Ralph wants to do? I think that's largely the issue, isn't it? I think that, as you say, it's important for a coach at this level to have a sounding board, to have somebody that, yes, they can disagree with. I think that Guardiola's got that again with Juan Manuel Lido, the, the Spanish coach who took over from Arteta before the start of the season. Somebody who sees the game in a similar way, but perhaps will see how to achieve things slightly differently. I think that, I mean, th- there are positives for Southampton. If you look at the partnership that Che Adams and Daddy Ings are starting to, to form, 
I think Che Adams looked extremely good at the weekend, probably the best that I've seen him play. Yeah. And Danny Ings is still dangerous. That finish for that first goal was so good. That could across goal in the corner of the, the goal. And Che Adams had almost a carbon copy later on when he, he got the ball on the edge of the area and hit that same angle-driven shot across the face of goal. I think the two of them could form a, a very good partnership under Hasenhutl in this 4-4-2. Mm. But there has to be an option beyond. I mean, Smallbones looked good. He, he's looked like a, a good young player who can become something in the Premier League. He can become a Premier League player. But you, you wonder if a combination of Smallbone and Ward-Prowse, I mean, Ward-Prowse from a, a technical perspective is, is fantastic. Um, I really like him, and not just for his set-piece delivery, but for everything else, for his ability to play through lines, for his ability to take up very smart positions. But you almost feel as though he needs something alongside him. And I think you, you talked about Sangare, and Sangare is the, the big mystery at the moment of of social media, isn't it? Everybody seems to be wondering why Sangare is not moved from Toulouse, given his, his data profile, his tactical profile, his physical profile, everything about him says that he should be a Premier League midfielder. You, you see him and he fits, every, he fits the profile almost perfectly. Yeah, it ticks every box. But nobody um, seems Sancho to Quinn, it. who's a really good analyst, yeah. did a, a piece recently and he, um, where he was looking for the next Fabinho. That's and right. he came up with, with three options and, and one of them was, was Sangari. And the other one I think that everybody was really hoping would come to the Premier League was Baptiste Santa Maria. And somehow Freiburg <laughs> yeah. pulled off an absolute coup in getting him. Um, but... I like I like Smallbone. I, I do. I think he's a good player. I do think he's maybe a little bit away from being ready to start. And yeah. the player they've been linked with is Tom Davies from Everton. Again, a player I do like. I just... He's not the player that's going to solve the problem. He's really good as a box-to-box midfielder. I think he's probably better as an eight and a three than, than, a, you know, than playing in a double pivot. But I just don't know that that kind of move will solve the problems. And and you mentioned positives for them. I thought Musa Janipo showed moments of extreme yeah. talent. He's, he's he is a real real talent. I remember I I um, posted on social media just after the Janipo deal came through to say that I thought a Southampton fan should be really excited because when he was in Belgium with Standard Liège, he he was fantastic. His ability on the ball, his directness. That there's a, a little bit about him of Sadio Mane that there are little similarities Gineppo's perhaps more of a dribbler than he is somebody who breaks lines with runs off the ball but there are similarities in the way they move and the way they take up positions off that left hand side I just think that if he can stay fit if he can have a full season of Premier League football then he's going to be somebody that bigger teams are going to definitely be looking at I I totally agree my my, uh Broadcast broadcast colleague on Anfield Index, Carl Matchett, is is a huge fan of him as well. Um, right, next, let's move on then. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about was the defensive setup of Leeds United. And they've had back-to-back four threes. They lost the first one. They won the second one. And the standout thing for me in both games is just how aggressive they are defensively. So you're obviously writing a book on BLC. You've done a ridiculous amount of research on the man. Do you think it's sustainable for Leeds to continue to be this aggressive defensively in the Premier League? Or is it going to leave them too open? Because it's just hard to see them continuing to score three and four goals 
every game as they have, but it's not hard at the minute to see them continuing to con- concede three and four goals when they're leaving open as many chances as they are at the minute. No, it's one thing to concede four goals to the champions on the opening day when you're playing at Anfield. It's quite another to then concede three goals against this Fulham side. Um, I have a feeling that it, we're not going to see Fulham score three times in many Premier League matches this season, even with Mitrovic playing. And yes, he's a handful, but the supporting cast around Mitrovic just perhaps isn't of the quality that Fulham need. I think you're right about how aggressive they are. And the the problem with Leeds is that they, under Bielsa, they play such almost an odd system. Um, the, the defensive line is relatively set, a back four, and Calvin Phillips sits in front of them as the six. You start off with that and you think, great. But then ahead of that, everything is predicated around getting numbers in the final third and breaking into the penalty area. The two eights almost at times seem to play on top of each other whether in possession or out of possession, it's the same. So you saw against Liverpool, and it was quite an interesting idea against Liverpool because the two eights for Leeds played on their left-hand side more. So they they shaded over to that side. And that prevented Trent Alexander-Arnold from really being able to get forward and get on the ball in transition. Great, you've cut off a progression route for Liverpool. But out of possession, they seem to press in the same kind of areas as well. And what we're seeing is, is this lead side, They normally when we talk about defensive systems in clubs, it's a hybrid. There are very, very few clubs at the top level who either play a zonal marking system or a man-to-man marking system. What you tend to see is a hybrid of the two. So certain positions or certain areas of the field will be zonal, but then when the, the opposition enter the final third, it almost becomes man-to-man. With Leeds, it's man-to-man marking across the entire pitch. And that's all very well until you have an opposition player who can dribble past a man in a one-on-one situation centrally. As soon as you have that ability to beat the opposition, to beat a Leeds midfielder one-on-one and get past your man, then you're going forward in huge amounts of space. And that's where Leeds really struggled to defend against Fulham. When you look at the the average positions, you can see how spread out Leeds were. But then you look at Fulham and everything seems to be bunched towards the central areas. That's because as the match wore on, they started to get real success against Leeds in the central positions. And Calvin Phillips is a, a really, really interesting player as a six. But his profile lends itself more to in possession with his passing range, his ability to break lines, his ability to carry the ball forward as well. Out of possession, he still struggles a little bit to control space in the way that, say, a Fabinho would. And that's where the problems for Leeds really lie. I think Bielsa, we all know that, I mean, we talked about pragmatism with Ralph Hasenhutl, how he needed to be more pragmatic. We know that if Hasenhutl isn't pragmatic, then Bielsa certainly isn't pragmatic, and we're, we're unlikely to see a change of of tactical philosophy out of possession. Leeds will continue to play this way, and it's all about whether they can continue to find the qualitative advantages that they have against some teams in the final third. I think if Patrick Bamford suddenly goes on less of a hot streak than he appears to be on at the start of this season, then Leeds start to have problems. I still think they'll be fine. I still think they'll be really interesting to watch. But from a defensive point of view, you just feel as though there needs to be a slight adjustment somewhere. I do agree on that. I definitely think there needs to be an adjustment. And and as you've said, um, Bielsa is probably the least pragmatic manager. Um, He's very much, you know, his own man. And he does what he thinks is the correct way. Now, 
at the moment, it appears like Leeds are about to add um, a new centre-back. So Diego Loriente from Real Sociedad, it appears that Leeds have agreed a fee of about 17 million, which I think is, is a good price for a player of his quality, Spanish international. And I wonder, because they've brought in Robin Koch, who's a really good player, German international, and Liam Cooper is the club captain. Do you think maybe we're about to see Leeds move to a back three, which Bielsa has obviously done in the past, and he plays that quite unique 3-3-1-3, where the wing-backs, quote-unquote, tuck in next to the six and form a three and become quite fluid in how they attack and defend. And then he plays a number 10 behind uh, a three-man attack. And I was just looking at the players available to him. So if a back three of Cox, Lorente, and Cooper with Phillips as the six and then either Matthias Glish or Stuart Dallas either side potentially, Pablo Hernandez as the 10. And I wonder if that's where he sees Rodrigo de Paul. And then Rodrigo, Bamford, and Helder Costa as a front three. Now, it's not perfect, but I, I do just wonder if that's maybe something he's looking at. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense, especially when you, if you listen to Bielsa and all the talk coming out of Leeds and, and Victor Orta, the Spaniard, does there as their head of recruitment. And he's always very willing to talk to the media. There was a lot of talk um, pre-season that they would look to buy Ben White if they couldn't buy Ben White, they would buy one other defender, but then they were content to go with what they had. So mm. they, they couldn't get Ben White, so they took in Robin Koch, as you said, a very good defender, another player from Freiburg, who, who drew a, very, a lot of interesting things in terms of their player development and player recruitment. And yeah, they got Santa Maria, who you name-checked earlier on, which is a really interesting move. So they signed Robin Koch, and, and that's as far as we were led to believe that was going to be it in terms of their defensive reinforcements. Now, whether Diego Llorente from Sociedad has just become available, it might be someone that they'd asked to be kept informed about his availability. It doesn't feel like that's going to be the case, because why would Sociedad say no previously, but then as the season starts for them, suddenly they're willing to sell their, their best defender. It doesn't feel true. It feels like this has been a deliberate decision to add to their defensive players. And, and yeah, they... they the sensible way to look at that is that it's going to be a switch to this 3-1-3, three, 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 which anybody who's, who's interested in this formation that's listening, go and find some footage of Marcelo Bielsa's Chile side when he was the, the coach of their national team. The, the way that they played is exactly what you're describing. It's the, the same kind of rotational movements and a lot of overloads and isolations as they move through the third and, again, a lot of aggressive man-to-man pressing. So certainly I think that this might be something where we would see an option forming for, for Leeds or for Bielsa when some matches it is the four at the back and others it's the three because Bielsa has always very famously stuck to the plus one rule, which dictates that you play one central defender more than the opposition has strikers. So if the opposition playing a lone striker system, you only have a back four because two central defenders should be able to cope with that one striker. If the opposition are playing two strikers, you play a back three. Now, what we saw sometimes at Chile is if it was a, a if it was a lone striker, it would still be the three at the back system, but one of those centre backs would step into the midfield constantly and rotate into that midfield position. Gary Medal, who, who used to play in the Premier League, uh, 
was one who used to do that a lot for them. Um, there are a couple of other players that, that come to mind as well. So it, it gives them a little bit more flexibility with the signing Llorente because I don't think they're going to go away from the man-to-man marking point of mm. system and point of view. So they need to find some other way just to plug those gaps defensively and a three-back system would certainly do that. And Robin Koch did play quite a bit as a holding midfielder for Freiburg. So he could step in next to Phillips and then Dallas and, and whoever, maybe Luke Ayling, you know, it'd be harsh on him to be the one left out. They just push a little bit wider and become more as wing backs. And like you say, they stick to to the man marking system. I just it I think in the Premier League, because of the level of analysis that goes into opposition scouting, it will be a quicker process for teams to maybe find the holes in Leeds than it has been in the championship because they're just there's not the budget in the championship to do it. And maybe teams would actually have to play Leeds to get a proper idea of what they were and where the where the, the weaknesses were. And then in the second time around, and we did see that in the second half of both seasons, is that Leeds did drop off a little bit. But in the Premier League, it just could become that little bit of a quicker process for them. And they're going to have to get a little bit tighter, aren't they? I mean, like you said, the the principle of just having man-to-man and not having that hybrid defence is so rare these days. Yeah, and and that's something that they they could potentially be found out on because we we talked about it last week. We talked a lot about about the Leeds Liverpool game, where um, Robin Koch shadowed Roberto Firmino right into his own half, and Firmino looked to drop off the front line, and that's all very well. But then you have to have complete faith in the capability of the rest of your teammates to be able to handle their one-to-one assignments. And as I say, as soon as you have a player who can beat one of those one-on-one assignments, you just open up space everywhere. A more hybrid system, I mean, Robin Koch could step into the midfield, and he's also a very, very good progressive passer. He's a player who's similar to Calvin Phillips. He's got that passing range. He can break the lines. He can play diagonals. He can change the angle of the attack very, very quickly in possession. So he has the ability to do that and step forward. And you just feel like having almost that free man who's able to shield and be in that defensive area to guard against quick transitions just that slight adjustment might be enough just to as you say just to defend space a little bit more effectively as you said i don't think they'll have any problems i don't think they'll be dragged into a relegation battle i think they have they have enough quality they have an incredible manager and they are continuing to add and it doesn't look like gloriente will be the last one in um just still pursuing rodrigo de paul and I'm sure they will have an alternative target because it looked like they were going for Gvardial, the young uh, Croatian defender. Uh, he turned them down and is on his way to RB Leipzig. And they moved very quickly on to, to Diego Loriente, who, like you said, it, it, I, it may be that he was always the target and they just didn't think that he was available or they weren't sure what the price on him would be. Um, as it turns out, if they're getting him for that price, if they can add him, and Robin Cock for around 30 million combined. I think that's tremendous business and does make a mockery of the idea that, you know, Harry Maguire cost 80 million last summer. James Tarkovsky could cost upwards of 50 when you can go on the continent and find comparable defenders um, for much lower fees. 
Absolutely, and I think that's just the sensible way to recruit these days. Yes, you're always going to play a premium for for British and English players. We know that, but you still have to question these fees. I mean, Harry Maguire for eighty million, especially Manchester United were held over a barrel on that deal. To be perfectly honest with you, I still find it surprising that all the reports were that Man City would all also end right until the end of that deal. I, I thought their recruitment process was slightly better, if you like. But certainly, if you think about the the price that they were going up to for Ben White, I think that Ben White would be worth the thirty to thirty five million that I think that they were they were trying to pay at one point. I think that he will go on to become one of the best central defenders in this at this level with a little bit more experience. And certainly, if you're able to add two players who already have experience, Yerente especially, as you touched upon, he's a, a Spanish international. He's a he was a key player for a good Sociedad team in terms of their defensive stability last season, and they're able to add him for the price that's quoted. Yes, Guardiol looks like a very good prospect and by all reports, Leeds actually offered Zagreb more than RB Leipzig have, but because of the the relationship that already exists between Zagreb and Leipzig and the, over the Dario Almo deal, for example, it appears that they've got the deal done quicker and, and Guardiol will go on and he will become a really interesting player under likes of Julian Nagelsmann. But if from a, a recruitment point of view, you have to question the the deal, for example, that's being linked at the moment for James Tarkowski from from Burnley. He's a good defender. He's a good defender at this level, but there has to be better. You look at Sven Botman, who who Lille managed to get from Ajax. I I don't know why Ajax sold him. He was on loan to Herenveen last season. He was one of the best left-footed central defenders that that we saw last season at Total Football Analysis and the consultancy side. We we did quite a lot of work for clients looking at left-sided central defenders and Sven Botman was continuously at the top of our list and then Lille managed to get him for a song from from Ajax and now you look at the prices that are being quoted for likes of Jamie Tarkovsky. There, there just has to be better options out there for clubs. There does and I mean, look, Burnley... Burnley themselves are having a bit of a mare in the market. You know, they're they're signing Dale Stevens, and it's nothing against Dale Stevens. He's a a good, honest professional who'll be a body in midfield. But, you know, look outside the box at some point. Look beyond the water, and you'll find bargains galore. I mean, we've we've highlighted two so far. Three, Sven Botman, Baptiste Santa Maria, and wherever Sangere ends up, I mean, all three clubs that land those three are, are getting bargain players. Um, there's a lot of British clubs that just seem stuck in the mud. And I, I was like you, I was very shocked to see Man City um, right in the mix for Harry Maguire last year uh, until the price got just a little bit too rich for them. I, I like the, you know, the recruitment this summer that they're aiming with. I, I you know, they paid a premium on Aki because he was coming from a Premier League team. But I do, I do like Aki as a player, um, and it looks like the 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 right sided centre back target they have to partner Americ Laporte is now Jules Kunde, who I'm a big fan of, um, and I think if you can get him for in and around the same kind of money that Burnley are talking about for Tarkovsky, who while a good defender, I think there's a ceiling on how good he can be, and he may already be at that ceiling. Uh, whereas Kunde has has levels and levels to go up. Yeah, definitely. I think Kunde is another player that, that I like a lot. I think we all saw his his qualities in the run that Sevilla had to the Europa 
league win last season. I think that he gives you something in terms of his ability in the air, his ability to defend in tight areas, which not all modern central defenders have. We we talk a lot about about certain defenders nowadays, and sometimes you just want them to be able to just defend. Something that Virgil Van Dijk has an abundance. You, you, yes, you look at him in possession, and he looks so composed and so elegant on the ball. But if needed to, he's the first player who will throw himself at an opposition player to make a block. He'll be the player who, in a one-on-one situation, doesn't get beaten because he's so defensively solid. And Kunde gives you that as well. So as well as being able to progress the ball, which obviously Laporte and Aki can do on the left-hand side, he also has that ability, that that ruggedness, that doggedness to defend. And I think that that's something that that Guardiola obviously wants for that right-sided player, and that's potentially why John Stones is no longer going to be part of the plans moving forward. It's actually a little surprising to me that that Leeds didn't try and pursue John Stones, uh, potentially even on a loan with an option to buy, if they were looking for someone like Ben White. I mean, profile-wise, White is you know is 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 where Stones was five years ago. Um, it's just that Stones hasn't developed the way we thought he was. We thought he would. I think he got better, a little bit better as a ball player, but defensively, he's never ironed out the the problems that he's had. And I, I I've always been a bit of a, a skeptic with Pep in terms of does he actually improve defenders as defenders, or does he improve them as footballers, and that can hide some of the weaknesses. Yeah, I think that's always the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's fine. You talk about the fact that Pep Guardiola has this specific defensive system, and he does, and he's quite open as well about the fact that he wants his defenders to take risks in possession, and sometimes they'll make mistakes, and when they make mistakes, he'll back them up and say, my fault, I've told them to play that way. We saw that to a point with John Stones with Pep Guardiola when when Guardiola would stand up for him in the press and say, no, no, I've asked him to progress the ball that way from the back. That mistake was my fault. But then as the mistakes gradually increased from Stones and it wasn't just in possession, it was out of possession with his positioning and things like that, his body angle, his body shape that he's defending is often not of the standard that Manchester City needed to be. You've seen Guardiola start to lose his patience a little bit. And this is somebody who has routinely converted central midfielders to play at centre-back. We saw it with Javier Mascarano, Yaya Toure played at centre-back in a Champions League final. It's all these different things that Pep Guardiola's done over the years and he just appears to finally lost patience with John Stones but I think John Stones perhaps needs to move now to go to a team where defensive defenders are asked to defend a little bit more so he can see if he can take that next step. What would have been really interesting to me if John Stones had gone back to Everton under Carlo Ancelotti I think that from a defensive point of view he would learn a lot from Ancelotti and it might be the step that he really needed to grow Yeah because he's still a young player um, and he's still got time to become the maybe not the player we all thought he would at like 1920 but maybe 80 to 90 percent of that right now he doesn't look like he'll get anywhere close um the next thing we want to talk about then was the the new crystal palace and lee let me ask you one question are crystal palace fun i think they just might be but to be perfectly honest with you i'm not sure why (laughs) it's it's bizarre obviously um they had a, a good victory against Manchester United, 3-1 at Old Trafford. is a, a fantastic win for a side like Crystal Palace. They have made moves this summer. They, they've done some interesting business because 
all the talk towards the end of last season was that Crystal Palace needed to revamp because their their squad, the average age of their squad in key positions, they were just getting so old. They, they needed to inject some youth into the squad to almost change the profile to make them more fluid, to make them able to do different things from a tactical perspective. And I think that the signing especially of Eberichi Easy from QPR is really, really interesting. He was, for my money, the best player in the championship last season, pound for pound. Such an interesting player as an 8 or a 10 with that ability to take players on. So far, we've kind of seen him play, but he does play for Crystal Palace from the left-hand side, which is understandable because Roy Hodgson perhaps doesn't really trust creative players in central positions. I'm sure that as a Liverpool fan, you'll appreciate that, Dave. Um, yeah, I'm but, sure Max Meyer appreciates it as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they just seem to have this... I mean, you look at the game, and you look at the game just through its base statistics. Manchester United had around 70% possession from the game. But they never created anything. They never looked like they were going to break Crystal Palace down. Yes, Donny van de Beek got his goal. But he got his goal through doing Donny van de Beek things. He doesn't... He's not a player that Manchester United fans can expect to pop up much outside the penalty area. But in the penalty area, he has this uncanny ability to almost be positioned perfectly to where the ball breaks. He did it time and time again at Ajax. He always seemed to be positioned in a really intelligent place in a pocket of space in the penalty area. And when the ball breaks to him, he's a good finisher. So he got his goal. Mason Greenwood should have scored with a back post header, which he completely messed up when he was completely free time and space good pace on the ball, all you had to do was make the right connection and that was a goal. But other than that, you really didn't see Manchester United produce anything or create anything and Crystal Palace were quite happy to sit deep in a compact shape but then suddenly Wilfred Zaha looks like the Wilfred Zaha three years ago and when the ball comes to him in the attacking phase, when he's isolated against these defensive players, he's isolated against Lindelof or Harry Maguire, they can't live with his ability and his directness to run at them. And all of a sudden, Crystal Palace have gone from looking like a team who who really needed to do something different to a team that you can see the plan and you can see what they're trying to do. And if Zaha could continue to be as effective as he is, then they're going to be very difficult to play against this year. I totally agree. And the, the three things that have stood out for me in the, the two matches so far that Palace have played. Number one... Wilf Zaha, like you said, is the Zaha of three years ago. And this is a guy playing with a serious chip on his shoulder, out to prove every week now that he is the best player on the pitch. He wants to put all the doubts to bed. He wants everybody to sit up and take notice. And remember that three years ago, people were talking about Wilf Zaha in respect of a move to Liverpool, a move to Manchester City, a move to Arsenal potentially a move abroad to a, you know one of the top teams in Europe and now if he does leave you're probably looking at you know with respect you're probably looking at, at an Everton a team who are mid table looking to get into the top the top echelon not an established top echelon team and for me I look at Zaha and I think I I just really want you to stay there and I want you to keep that mentality year after year, because I think as the biggest fish in a small pond, he could just become a real, not not just, you know, a star at Crystal Palace, but a real Premier League star player, one of the best players in the league in that team. And if he's got Batshuayi 
and he's got Easy, and he's got potentially Rian Brewster coming in to help him. All of a sudden, the gap between him and the next best guy isn't as drastic as it's been for a number of years. And when you see the young players developing as well, because Nathan Ferguson is going to be a really good addition at right back. The second thing that stood out to me is Tyreek Mitchell is for real at left back. And while I think Van Aanholt will come back in uh, in the short term, that is Crystal Palace's left back situation solved for a couple of years to come because Tyreek Mitchell is for real. And the third thing that stood out to me, and I think this might be why I think they're a little bit more fun, is that even though it's been due to injuries and it's kind of an emergency break glass situation, I really like Koyate playing as a centre-back because I think he's a progressive passer who's comfortable to step out with the ball and just give them a little bit of something different that they don't have when it's Scott Dan or Martin Kelly or James Tompkins or Gary Cahill. Koyate is better on the ball and gives them a little bit of an outlet from the back. He definitely does, and it's interesting because you can partner Coyote with a Sacco, and, and Sacco is obviously a bit of a bomb scare with the ball at his feet, but if all you want him to do is be physical and defend space, he can still do that. So he gives you that flexibility, and you're right, Coyote can take the ball up, and because Crystal Palace play with their two deep sixes, if you like, and MacArthur and McCarthy or Milosevic, whoever plays alongside MacArthur really in the midfield they they don't have that ability to progress quite so easily instead they're looking for that longer ball in the first instance to try and hit Zaha quickly and with Zaha now playing predominantly through the centre as well he's now got licence to roam around the front third a lot more and that gives Crystal Palace a lot more options in possession. It's also interesting to note that a, a lot of people who, who kind of look behind the scenes at different advanced metrics, if you like. A lot of people are starting to wonder if Andros, Andros Townsend has suddenly discovered what XG is because he isn't shooting anymore from, from 20, 30 yards as he, he has his, his entire career. Instead, he's popping up in really good positions and he, he took his goal against United well with that late arrival at the back post. So that's another attacking outlet that, that Crystal Palace have because Townsend is also as often flattered to deceive a little bit from a attacking point of view. For all his talent, you just felt like the end product wasn't always there. So suddenly, Crystal Palace have gone from being this team who everyone thought was too old and everyone thought had run out of ideas under Roy Hodgson. All of a sudden, they look like something different. And it might not be fantastic to watch over the course of 90 minutes, but if all you're doing is looking at snapshots, because yes, Mitchell's really interesting. Nathan Ferguson, he comes back, I don't know what West Brom were doing letting him go right back. Suddenly, this Crystal Palace team with Ezzy as well, with the capability to play the way that he does, mm. suddenly they look really, really interesting. They do, and they look like they're planning for you know, the years post-Hodgson as well. Um, it, Andros Townsend is such a, a funny player. He's always been, to me, just one of those irrational confidence guys. Like He walks onto the pitch, and despite a mountain of evidence to, to display otherwise. He thinks he's the best guy there. And he's he gets the ball, and it's real simple. I'm cutting inside this guy. I've got the skill and pace to beat him. I don't care how far out I am. I'm having a shot. <laughs> and that's been his game for oh, his whole career. Like Spurs, Newcastle, and now Palace. That's been his game. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's hampered his development because he is a good player. 
Uh, exactly. He has he has definitely got talent, but he's like you say, he's missing that that realization that sometimes you have to do something different. I mean, he seems to think he's Aryan Robin, but he's not as talented as Aryan Robin. Aryan Robin could pull that off for his entire career because of just how good and consistent he was at doing it. Instead, Adas Tanzi goes through these 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 gaps in his play, but suddenly nothing's working for him, but he keeps trying anyway. I mean, you can't forget that goal he scored against Manchester City two years ago when he absolutely leathered the ball from about 25 yards in the volley and, and beat the Manchester City the goalkeeper defence all hands up. And he's got the ability to do that. He just has to find a way to fit in with the team as a whole a little bit more. And you wonder if having Zaha playing more centrally as part of a two with the ability to drift a little bit, whether he's going to take up the same kind of zones that Townsend would look to drift into. Townsend may suddenly decide that he's better off going into different areas of the pitch to find space elsewhere. And that'll benefit him going forward too. I don't think this is something revolutionary that Roy Hodgson has done from a tactical point of view, because I think that what you see with Roy Hodgson is what you get especially at this stage in his managerial career so it's more likely that it's just a, a natural almost a, a, a re- reaction from the Crystal Palace players to the way that Zaha's playing and the positions that he's taken up that they've raised their game around him That that does seem to be it and I think a big part of it as well is like there has to be an acknowledgement in the dressing room like Will Zaha is our best player and if he goes, we could be in trouble here. So what we all need to do collectively is we all need to raise our games a little bit and we all need to play through him and not have him... Like, the problem last year and, and the little bit the year before with Palace was it, it almost felt like it became hero ball where Zaha was having to drop off into his own half, collect the ball, and then was expected to do everything else himself. Sometimes you watch Adama Traore and it's the same thing. But the difference is Traore has quality teammates around him. Like when he makes that 40-yard run and beats three players and gets his cross in, it's going to Raul Jimenez. If he gets caught up and looks for an outlet pass, he had Doherty, he had Ruben Neves, Jaimatinho, quality players. For Zaha, he looked up and he saw Andros Townsend and he knew, right, that guy's going to get the ball and put it in the stand. Or he looked up and thought, oh, there's Christian Benteke. That guy hasn't scored a goal in, in God knows how long. Like, he was been asked to do far too much. And now it seems like the rest of the team are taking some of that weight off him, getting him in positions where he can be more impactful. And is ha- he's actually having to do less to do more. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You think about the attacking options that he has. I mean, Ayu played as the, the striker alongside Zaha at the start of this game. I still think that Crystal Palace have the wrong Ayu. I think that his brother, Swansea, is a, a better player for me and a better fit for the Premier League. But all of a sudden, you're right, Zaha suddenly has options around him. And that could only be a good thing for Crystal Palace in terms of the way that they want to play. If they're going to sit in this low block and then play direct towards Zaha, having players who are, who have quality, who Zaha is able then to get around him to find a way to break through teams in transition. It's it's not going to be pretty football. It's not going to be eye-catching football, but it's going to be very effective football. And I think that sometimes that's okay. And it's okay to play different ways in the Premier League. And it doesn't all have to look like Manchester City. And I think that's what Crystal Palace will give us this season. I agreed. And I do think when when Easy comes into the team and, and Batshuayi is in the team, and if they do add Rian Brewster, I'm not sure how it'll all fit together, but they will just, they'll have 
they'll have a nice balance between being a functional, well-drilled team and having some little bits of individual brilliance and one player in Zaha, assuming he stays, that can just be a game changer. Um, the final thing I want to touch on with you today is Chelsea. Um, having watched both Chelsea games this season, I don't know what Frank Lampard is doing. Um, defensively, they're all over the place. In midfield, it doesn't seem like there's a real there's a real strategy. There's no like when you watch them press, it doesn't look like a coordinated press. It's it's almost like Kante goes and does something, and everybody else kind of reacts to what Kante does, as opposed to that Kante thing being the trigger for a plan. And in attack, it's it's not pretty at all. There's no defined patterns of play. There's no structure. There's no focal point, no reference point. It literally, against Liverpool, it was literally, let's just try and get the ball over the box and hope that Timo Werner can get on to the end of something. Yeah, and you're right. I think the key thing is that it is not pretty at the moment. I think that to a point from a squad building perspective and a recruitment perspective, you really have to think about how individual players fit into a collective system when you're looking to recruit at the Premier League level. To a point, I don't think Chelsea have fully done that. Why I I like all of these players individually, but I can't see how they work as a collective, how you can go out and sign Hakim Ziyech, how you can go out and sign Kai Havertz, and how you can sign Timo Werner and think that they're going to be cohesive as a unit together. It might be that over time those players have the quality and they'll they'll see enough of one another and it'll all work itself out and suddenly they'll understand each other's movements and then you'll see a little bit more quality in the attacking phase. But just now, everything looks disjointed. And it's such a departure from what we saw from Chelsea last season. I mean, yes, they, they were obviously under the transfer embargo, so they weren't able to go out and sign players. So Lampard was forced to rely a little bit on youth players. But it seemed to work. They, they seemed to be in a position where, yes, they weren't necessarily challenging for the title, but top four, absolutely. But all of a sudden, they go out and recruit all of these fantastic players, and there just doesn't seem to be a tactical picture. It almost appears to be that that old-fashioned way of of playing players when you just put them all on the pitch and hope that they work it out together, almost. There doesn't seem to be a, an identifiable game plan. You talk about out of possession, and Jorginho and Kante should be a very effective double pivot. Jorginho is very good at controlling space. Kante is very good at attacking space. The two of them together should be able to perform that function quite well. But what they need is support from the line of three. If it's a 4-2-3-1 that Chelsea eventually play, they need support from that line of three in front of them to press almost backwards or sideways. So when Kante presses, you need to like some Mason Mount or Kai Havertz or Hakim Ziyech when he comes back at the team or whoever's playing in those positions. They need to understand the angles and where they're supposed to press and how they're supposed to cut off the options for the man in possession to escape the press. But at the moment, you're absolutely right, it's not happening. And I think that we we didn't even see an aggressive press against Liverpool. The sending no. off in the first instance was was ridiculous. Why why Christensen decided that that would be a good idea to jump on the back of Sadio Mane with the way that he did and then look surprised we got a red card, I'll never understand. But even in the first half, they weren't pressing or, or working a coherent way. In the second half, they just dropped back in a deep defensive block and hoped that they could prevent Liverpool from breaking through. 
unfortunately for Chelsea, because that might have been effective last season. But all of a sudden, from the bench, Liverpool have an option in Thiago, who is perfect to break down deep blocks. Mm. And teams in the Premier League just can't defend against Liverpool that way because Klopp will just deploy Thiago and Thiago will find the angles and the, the passing routes to break through the defensive block. And then, then you're left having to react to being a goal down in a defensive position and a defensive mindset. And that's very difficult to do. The thing for me is like one of the things I, I I like to do when I've got twenty minutes to do you know with nothing going on is is to just go and look through what Chelsea fans are are talking about at the moment and you see you see a lot especially with the younger generation of fans and they talk about you know this player is clear of that player it's all nonsense but they a lot of them put put together these these elevens and they're like something you put together on FIFA. And they've got Werner up front and, you know, Zayic from the right, Havertz at 10, Pulisic as the left winger. And you're like, okay, that, that's absolutely fine. They're, they're four really good players. And in theory, they all fit those positions. But Werner hasn't really played that role in that kind of system before. At the minute, he's best playing from the left-hand side. And if you look at, you know, things like heat maps and passing charts for Werner and Pulisic over the last couple of years, they're really really similar now they're different players but the areas they take up are really really similar and the same for Havertz and Zayic totally different players but the areas that they like to play in are really different and I've seen people say oh well look look when when Havertz played here and what he was doing with a right winger and interplay and stuff like that and that was fine at Leverkusen when he was playing with an out-and-out burner on the right flank in Bellarabi, but that's not Zayic's game. And Zayic is going to want to drift in field. And now you're opening a massive flank for Reese James. And again, that's fine. Reese James will get forward. He's a really good player. But all of this re- requires four players, th- three players to settle in at a new club in a new league and learn a new system. Two of them, Havertz and Werner, need to learn slightly new roles. And then behind them, like you say, in theory, the Jorginho-Kante pairing will work. But the problem is that when Kante goes, if Chelsea lose the ball, Jorginho's not a particularly good defensive player 1v1. And teams will bypass him quite quickly. And if James has gone bombing forward, and you know Chilwell's going to be gone forward on the other flank, all of a sudden you're going to be left very, very open at the back. And something I saw last night was Chelsea fans talking about how Frank is building a defensive structure. And their idea of him building the defensive structure was that he's buying defensive players. He bought Chilwell, brought in Thiago Silva, um, new goalkeeper on the way, and Declan Rice potentially arriving as well. But for me, that's not building a defensive structure. Defensive structure is built in your tactical game plan. It's not built in the transfer market. Again, this is not FIFA. And I just don't look at Chelsea and think, that's a team that knows what they're doing defensively. Last year, they were really poor defensively, and they were so open against counterattacks. And from what I'm what I'm seeing so far this season and what they're doing in the transfer market, I just think it's going to be more and more the same because... None of the attackers they've brought in are particularly willing defensive workers. Zayic will chase back, but, you know, it's one thing chasing back. He doesn't actually do anything when he gets back. He doesn't make, like, he's not a particularly good tackler. He's not 
the type of player who's going to win the ball in a 1v1 situation. Havertz doesn't particularly like to work back all that much. Werner doesn't like to do it either. Pulisic isn't known for it. So you're going to be relying a lot on on your defense to hold things together. And when you've got two attacking fullbacks and one of your centre-backs is going to be a 36-year-old who's never played in this league, never played in a league that's played at a high tempo, has never, ever, ever in his life been asked to defend big spaces. I just, I look at that Chelsea team and I, I just think there's far more questions than answers at this point. There definitely are. We we talked last week about the problems Thiago Silva will face in this this league, and you're absolutely right. He cannot defend space, and that's all that he's going to be asked to do. Because you're right, if they bypass Kante, they can beat Jorginho. He can be played around. He can be played through. You can outrun him because he's not the quickest player. So when you you have the the same idea, so you have suddenly you have Thiago Silva who's been asked to defend in space against a team who will look to isolate and attack him because teams at the Premier League level will understand that Thiago Silva can't defend in that way, and then Chelsea have huge problems. I I just think that last season Lampard had a a lot of leeway from the Chelsea fans because he's a club legend and because he was given time to these young players who would develop. But now, with a little bit of leeway in the transfer market, they've just gone out and signed a lot of players without thinking about a coherent tactical plan. And mm. you're absolutely right. The, the key part is the, the spaces these players like to take up. Ziyech is fantastic cutting in from the right-hand side and his his range of pass from there. If you just look at some of the videos you'll find online of his passes at Ajax when he would play those driven angle diagonal passes that were just fantastic. But then where exactly is Kai Havertz going to be positioned? There's a sense that you almost are going to want to flip it slightly and have Kai Havertz playing as the ninth, which he can, and yeah. then have Werner attacking from the left-hand side. But then that means no room for Pulisic, and Chelsea fans won't be happy about that either. And that would give you a little bit more flexibility. And a 4-3-3, when suddenly you have a little bit more options with Kovacic being able to play in the central midfield as well. And maybe there's a little bit more sense to that structure. But at the moment, having Werner try to play as a lone striker, which he isn't used to doing, Chelsea fans seem to think he's a, a nine and out and out nine. He isn't. He's a player who's far better attacking space from deeper positions or from mm. wide. And there just seem to be, a, you're right, there are far more questions at the moment than there are answers. And and the thing is as well, again, Chelsea fans are, you know, continually beating the drum that, you know, Frank wants to play a high-intensity pressing style. Um, well, why isn't he buying players to play that style then? Like, the best, the two best pressers at Chelsea are, well, sorry, the three. Kante, who's definitely going to be in the team. Kovacic, who may not be in the team. And Mason Mount, whose position all of a sudden looks in massive doubt. And if he is going to get into the team, it's likely going to be on the right wing. And he played there against Liverpool, and he just looked completely lost. He he doesn't seem to have ever... I don't know, maybe he has, but I've never seen him play there before. Not for Derby or Chelsea, or for the England underage teams. He just looked completely out of sorts. And I just... I think... I wonder if Chelsea... I think they signed Zayic because it was an opportunity. He he was available. Everybody knew he was available. He's a really, really good player. There are question marks over him in terms of, you know, how he's going to adapt and fit. There's got to be a reason he stayed in the Eredivisie so long. But it, that felt like an opportunity signing. Timo Werner was going to Liverpool. There's just no argument on that. He was going to Liverpool. And Liverpool pulled out because of the effects of the, the pandemic. That's an opportunity signing. 
I don't think anyone expected Kai Havertz to go anywhere other than Bayern Munich. But when Sané hurt his knee last year and Bayern pulled the plug, they made a promise to Sané, we'll come and get you next year. So they had to buy him this summer, which meant they couldn't afford to buy Kai this summer as well. And Kai didn't want to hang around another year at Leverkusen. So he's suddenly available and there's nobody else in for him. So there's an opportunity. And I think Thiago Silva is the same. Like, I don't think anybody would have made their plan for this summer and thought, you know who we want to solve our defensive problems is Thiago Silva. Like, 36, massive wages, but he, you know, that's the guy we're going to target. It all just seems to me a little bit, a little bit like, you know, there's agents calling them and going, right, well, this guy's available and they're going, okay, he's really good. Where does he fit? Oh, it doesn't matter. He's really, really good. Just get him in and we'll figure it out later. And, and they are going to have to figure it out later. But for Frank, there's no later. Frank has to figure this out now. Because like you said, last year, a lot of leeway, because his name is Frank Lampard, he's a club legend. This year, $220 million into into the summer spending with, with Mendy coming in, and maybe more to come. There's not going to be leeway. Roman will expect a title challenge. Fourth is not going to cut the mustard for him this year. It's title challenge or bust. And if, if Chelsea end up fifth, Frank is out the door. Roman doesn't play around. Roman is the most ruthless owner in, in the game. Yeah, exactly. We saw that with Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho was also a club legend. and He came back. He left the first time, came back the second time. There was a little bit of leeway. Then suddenly, if the results weren't going right, he was out the door. It'll be the same with Frank Lampard. I think that there needs to be... I mean, Chelsea get a lot of praise for their recruitment, and a lot of people felt as though they were recruiting more using analytics, but you're right, they, they appear that appears to have gone out the window because they've identified these individual opportunities, but the larger opportunity is the post-pandemic or the current pandemic that we're, we're witnessing at football level and with everyone's general life. Suddenly, clubs who may have rivaled them for the likes of Werner and Havertz are being more cautious with their spending. So suddenly, Chelsea have the ability, it's, it's always the, the way, isn't it, whenever our market is experiencing difficulties there are opportunities for people who are willing to invest in the market mm-hmm. and that seems to be the route that Chelsea have taken wholesale that they've just gone all in they, they spent all this money don't forget transfer fees are one thing but wages are another They're, they've committed huge wages to these players so the overall financial spend is significant and if they don't end up with a Champions League space it could be disastrous for Chelsea overall the following are the managers that have worked at Chelsea under uh, under uh, at Roman as permanent managers, Claudio Ranieri fired. Mourinho won two titles, finished second, fired. Luis Felipe Scolari, World Cup winner, fired. Carlo Ancelotti won a double, one of the all-time greats, fired. Andre Villas Boas, they paid a fortune to buy him out of his contract at Porto, gave him a ridiculous contract was the hottest property in management at the time, fired. Roberto Di Matteo won a Champions League, fired. Rafa Benitez won a Europa League, fired. Mourinho again won a title, club legend, one of the all-time greats, fired. Antonio Conte, one of the five or six best managers in the world, won the title, fired. Maurizio Sarri won a Europa League. They were desperate to get him in the door, gave him one season and fired him. Objectively, all of them are better managers than Frank Lampard. 
And all of them came to Chelsea much more proven than Frank Lampard, with the exception of Di Matteo. Di Matteo is maybe the only one you could argue Frank is better than, but Di Matteo won them a Champions League. Um, I, I, just, I, I think Frank's name will give him a little bit more rope than everybody else, bar Mourinho and maybe Carlo because of his standing in the game at the time. But I, I just think there's so much pressure on Frank now. And I, if, if things continue to go badly, and look, they, they beat Brighton, but they didn't play well. They were terrible against Liverpool. And Sachin Nakrani described it best as an arrogant win for Liverpool. And that's what it was. It was easy. Liverpool looked like they had gears and gears to go up through and could have scored a third or fourth at any time. I think Frank is going to find himself under a lot of pressure this year. And it's an, it's an awful lot for a young manager who's only got one, well, two seasons behind him, one at Chelsea, one at Derby, but one season in the top flight behind him. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if things are going badly by Christmas. We hear talk that there's, you know, discussions about making a change. Yeah, that, that could quite easily be the case. And again, though, you have to wonder exactly what route you would go down as a coach these days. Yes, Chelsea are going to be an attractive proposition in terms of the size and stature of the club. But for a top-level coach, for the Julian Nagelsmans of the world, for example, mm-hmm. surely they would look at the, the long-term, the medium-term picture and, and go through the list that you've just listed there. How many coaches before them have came in and been promised the earth and then out the door again, despite some relative modicum success. And you've got to wonder exactly where Chelsea would go after Lampard. And perhaps more crucially, you've got to wonder where Lampard would go after Chelsea. Because I don't think you get an immediate chance at a top six club again after spending the amount of money that he has. And it might be that this will work out and they will right themselves. But early signs for Chelsea certainly are not positive. No, they're not. And I agree. I think he'll get another job without question. But if you look at Brendan Rodgers, went to Liverpool, almost won the title, spent far less money, and got has not been even considered for a top six job since. Um, had to go to Celtic because no Premier League team would would consider him, and then took the Leicester job. And uh, you know, with respect to Leicester, they've got a fantastic team, but they're not a, a top six or a big six club. So you know, he he's had to drop down a little bit and. Brendan Rodgers himself actually said it best when he was linked with the the Chelsea job when he was at Swansea. He said, I'm trying to build a career, not ruin one. He had been there. He knew how things worked. And you can't argue with the level of success. What Chelsea have done in terms of success under Bramovic is incredible. You know, league title after league title, Champions League, a whole bundle of cups. It's been fantastic for the club. But I agree with you. I, I think Nagelsmann or Marco Rose or, you know, maybe a Jesse Marsh look at that and think, no, that's not for me. I can go there and win the league and still get fired. So, you know, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a tough time for Frank. I do. And I sympathize with him because, I, I, you know, I, I put tribalism aside. I, I like Frank as a player. Um, I thought he was doing a good job at Derby. I would have really liked to have seen him stay at Derby and actually try and build something there and build himself up there. But he chose the the Chelsea job for obvious reasons. Um, Remains to be seen whether it works out for him. I hope it does, because I like to see young managers do well. Right, uh, Lee, that's us for today. Um, Anything else you want to touch on before we jump off? No, I think I'm all good, thanks. Perfect. So you can follow Lee on Twitter, at FM Analysis. Make sure you check out his books. Mastering the Premier League on Pep Guardiola and King Klopp 
on Jurgen Klopp, book on Marcelo Bielsa in the works. So make sure you keep a follow on that. Um, that's me for today. Thank you, as always, to, to Lee. Thank you to producer Guy Drinkle. Thank you to EPLindex.com for the platform and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is, of course, a VPN provider, so do check out their products at LibertyShield.com. They're offering a free two-week trial um, as part of their current plan, so do check that out. Thank you to Fox Haunt for our title music. Check out Fox Haunt on Twitter. Really good, exciting, up-and-coming band. Thank you to you, as always, for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow. Podcast Network.